Greetings in this new year. Pray God's blessings on you and your family as we move into the year. Get this, 2022. Can you believe it? For some of us who've been around a little longer than others, it's a little bit hard to believe, isn't it? 2022. Maybe one of the things that uh, you're committed to in this new year is your health and well-being. A lot of times people, that's a New Year's commitment, right? Your health and well-being. You'll make your way to your uh, doctor's office and they'll bring you in and they'll take you to the room and they'll sit down. And what's the, one of the first things they'll do? I don't know about you, but they have these new devices. They strap around your wrist and then they put them on there and they tell you to hold it up. You guys, does this sound familiar? Hold it up to your, like this across your chest and they're taking a reading. They're, they're looking for your blood pressure, right? I'm no uh, medical expert, but I understand it. What they're trying to do is measure pressure of your heart as it delivers blood throughout your body, right? Um, They may even um, call for a test where they'll measure the impulses of your heart, an EKG, an electrocardiogram, because that blood pressure is being driven by the ability of your heart to beat in a certain rhythm to deliver blood throughout your body. Are you with me? Those electrical impulses, we're measuring the ability, the pulse by which your body is delivering blood throughout as an indicator of your overall health. What is he doing talking about this at the beginning of his sermon? Is he concerned about your health? Yes, of course he's concerned about your health. But what I want to say is that I, want, I believe um, that there is a certain indicator of the health, the spiritual health and vitality of not only our individual lives, but more importantly of our collective lives as the people of God. There is a pulse that we can measure that indicates the degree to which the life of God is infused throughout our body, throughout the body of Christ. This pulse, this lifeblood being driven by a heart. And I believe that that instrument, the heart within us, our collective life as the people of God, that one way to think about it is that that heart is the life of prayer. And the life of prayer is delivering, sustaining the life of God, the vitality, the spiritual vitality. And if I were to push the analogy further, which is a little bit dangerous to push analogies too far, I would say that those electrical impulses, right, that make your heart beat in rhythm, that those rhythms are animated by the life of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit, right, that delivers these impulses and and that then there's that, that pulse, the life of God that pulses throughout our body. And God has always desired for His people to have a life that's infused with His own life. And in fact, If you look back at the history of God's people, there were these moments where God was concerned that while they gathered in God's own house, in God's name, called to to gather their worship up, the, the, the life that they lived out day in and day out, that they came together in their assemblies, and that they offered their songs, and they kept their festivals, and they offered their sacrifices and their feast. They did all those things that God had prescribed for them to do when they came together as God's people. But God said, I despise it. I want nothing to do with it. Why? Was it because, uh, this is Amos, by the way. Amos is a little fiery. Was it because they didn't do the, that they didn't assemble? 
That God was so upset with them? No, it wasn't because they didn't worship together. Was it because they didn't offer the sacrifices that God had called for? No, it wasn't because they didn't offer the sacrifices that God had called for. Is it because they, did, they failed to declare their praise to God? No, they did all those things. They offered their songs. They kept their sacrifices, their feasts, and their festivals. The problem God had with them is that their practice of these things did not result in the life of God being manifest in who they were, in their identity, and in their actions. You neglect justice and mercy. You come and you worship day in and day out. But somehow, I don't know, maybe it was an arrhythmia, the rhythm of their heart. Their pulse was weak. That though they kept these things, the life of God was not pulsing through their veins Their heart as God's people did not beat one with God's own heart. God declared through the prophet Isaiah, God said, My house will be called a house of prayer for all people. What I want to invite us as we begin this new year together is to take our pulse. Now, you don't have to, you know, sometimes preachers ask everybody to do something together, but you don't have to do this if you don't want to. But I put my fingers here on my wrist because... That's where you feel the pulse. You can do it here. Where are my nurses? Or here, right? They all, I know who they are now because they all went here. You can do it. You do it here. And you check your pulse. We move into this new year believing that it's the life of prayer. It's being called into a house of prayer where all of God's people come together, where God gathers all people together, that that life of prayer tunes our heart to beat one with God's own heart so that our, the pulse of God's life animates our life and beats one with God's heart. Listen, these words read for us moments ago. When Jesus' um, disciples saw him praying, they witnessed him praying. I'm adding a little commentary here. I imagine they looked at Jesus, they watched him pray, they looked at each other, they looked at Jesus watching him in prayer, and they turned to him and said, Lord, Jesus, Rabbi, our teacher, our Messiah, teach us to pray. And when they had asked him this, Jesus responded by saying, when you pray, say these things. You see the first of these words on the screen, and we're going to come back to this uh, at the end of our time together. So be prepared to pull those up again in just a moment. But I want you to bow with me now and um, spend a moment in prayer as we receive God's word today. Oh God, our desire is that our heart beats one with your heart, that your life animates our life, that those things that occupy our minds are the things that you care about most, and that those things that move us in our spirit, the things that we care about and are passionate about most are the things that you care about and are passionate about most, that the things that we do with our time, the time that you give us, that you graciously grant to us, that the time that you offer to us to spend our days and to apply our life's work, that they will be the things that you care about, that every person and in every moment, your life would be the pulse that beats through our own veins. So draw us into this prayer, these words that you give us, so that our lives might be formed and shaped to beat one with your heart and your life. Gather us up in this house of prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
If you were granted for a moment the opportunity to travel back in time and to be witness to and to be present in the life of Jesus, I wonder what moment you might choose. You can only choose one episode, one moment, one instance to be present in the life of Jesus. What moment might you choose? I can think of, you know, I've got my top list of moments that I might choose. I might choose Jesus standing in the temple when he begins his public ministry for obvious reason. If you are a preacher or a teacher of preachers or it might be interesting to think what's Jesus's first sermon when he first steps before the people of God and they hand him the scroll and he opens it up to read it and he begins to speak to stand in that moment and to hear Jesus. These words come from the mouth of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Jesus saying these words, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Those first words of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Or maybe you might choose, some of you I'm thinking are probably going to say, hey, sign me up for that wedding in Cana because that sounds like a party. And that might be fun to see Jesus in that kind of setting at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. I don't know if you're like my wife. My wife loves weddings. She loves everything about weddings. She loves planning weddings. She loves helping people plan weddings. She loves putting on weddings. She loves attending weddings. Anybody else like a wedding fanatic out there? Loves something about weddings. So let's go see Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right? And see that moment where they turn to him and say, hey, this thing is not working out so well the celebration's getting underway, and it's so much a part of, of, the, of these beginnings and the life of this community, and yet there's no more wine. And Jesus says, you see those jars over there? Go fill them up with water, and he fills them up with water, and when they pour them out, there's wine, new wine, never-ending wine. Jesus at a wedding, and maybe you'd choose that. Or maybe you might choose to see Jesus, to be with Jesus, as they bring to him a man who's been blind for a long time and has learned to accept that and navigate life, but he cannot see. And they've learned about this Jesus and he's come to their region, their area, and they've, the blind man's come before Jesus and Jesus reaches out and touches the blind man and says, can you see? He says, I kind of see, but not really. I don't see. I see. It's kind of, fu- it's all fuzzy now. Jesus touches him again. He can see everything clearly. I want to see Jesus in that moment. I want to see the expression on the face of that blind man who's been given sight. Maybe you might choose a moment like that. I've got another one or two I'll mention. Maybe you might choose to see Jesus as he kneels down before this woman who they've pulled out, singled out, because she's made some bad choices with her life and really They are not only her choices, but they're the choices of all the people and the circumstances that surround her in her time and place. She's been taken advantage of, and now she's been caught in the act. And they drag her out there in front of everyone, and everyone knows what the script is, right? What she gets for that. And Jesus kneels down beside her, and he looks into her eyes, and he looks at the people around and says, hey, all you people that are ready to stone her, If any of you are without fault, you be the first one to throw it. I want to hear each one of those stones hit the ground. Thud, thud. I want to see Jesus kneel down and gently lean in and say to her, neither do I condemn you. That's a moment, right? And maybe, just maybe, you might choose to say, I want to go back and be with Jesus in that moment where he receives 
word that his dear friend, Lazarus, has died. To walk with Jesus in his weeping, who makes his way back and enters into that place where Lazarus has already been put in the tomb. And Jesus tells them to remove the stone. And he calls out life for Lazarus in the face of death. And Lazarus comes walking out of that grave and he turns around and he looks at those who are there with him and says, well, go take off his grave clothes and let him go. Maybe you might want to be there in a moment, in a moment like this where life overcomes death when death seems so real and tangible and final. A moment like that. There are so many moments where if Jesus represents the fullness of the life of God, pulsing through our veins, we might want to step into a moment of that and take it all in. What moment would you choose? What moment would you choose? Well, maybe we might choose also to sit with Jesus in a moment of prayer like this. A moment of prayer. I think of all those moments that mark Jesus' life in prayer. Jesus, before he stands up to preach that first sermon I just mentioned a moment ago, is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where for 40 days he fasted and prayed. And you remember, wrestled with the devil. Maybe you too might like to walk into that space with Jesus because you know the truth is every single one of us wrestle with the devil. And something's being forged out there in the wilderness. And so you might choose to say, I want to walk with Jesus, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and be with Jesus 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Or maybe you might want to be with him in the end when he walks into the garden, a place of prayer. And he tells his disciples to stay here and watch and pray. And he goes and he prays in deep anguish, the story says. In deep anguish he prays. That his will might be one with God's will, even as he faces offering his own life for the sake of the world. If there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. Let your life, God, your life pulse through my veins. Let your life permeate all of creation in that moment in the garden. From the wilderness to the garden to sit with Jesus in a moment of prayer It's little wonder that Jesus' disciples would see him in a moment of prayer like this. It doesn't say in Luke 11 the specifics. It just says that one day when his disciples saw Jesus praying, they were compelled to turn to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's what disciples of any rabbi would ask their teacher. We want to enter into the school of prayer with you, rabbi. But more than that, I think... In Jesus, they had seen most clearly the connection between the life of prayer that Jesus engaged and the life of God manifest in who Jesus was. Are you with me? They could sense when they came near him, that pulse, boom, 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 the life of God in him. And they wanted to know what it was and how they too could move in rhythm with the heartbeat of God, the life of God. Lord, teach us to pray they ask. Sign us up. We want to know. Enlist me in the seminar. (laughs) I'll pay whatever the fee is to attend the workshop. I want to walk away with the notebook full of all of the insights about prayer. I want to take notes. I want to gather it all up. Give me the six easy steps to a life of prayer. All of that good stuff. 
Motivate me. Inspire me, Jesus, to a life of prayer. All of that's good. But instead, what Jesus does is he doesn't give them a workshop. He doesn't invite them to, okay, now gather around and sit down, children. I want to tell you about all the techniques and context and methods and modes of prayer. Jesus doesn't do that at all. What does he do? When they ask them to teach him about prayer, Jesus says, okay, when you pray, say this. He gives them words. He gives them words. The interesting thing is that they are words that they're to, that they're to speak to God, right? The words on the screen are addressed to God. Our Father in heaven, they're words that we speak to God, but that's not all they are. Have you noticed this? That they are words from God. Jesus is giving them words from God to speak to God. They go both directions, don't they? Take these words that are words from God, make them your own words, and speak them to God. Why? So that they might form you. These particular things that God cares about most might form you to be people whose lives beat one, whose common life together beats one with the life of God. Lord, teach us, form us, make us, teach us to pray. And in this prayer... We are immersing ourselves in these words. We are immersing ourselves in the life of God, inhabiting, again, a house of prayer. Here's the interesting thing I would suggest to you. The irony is, when Jesus gives us these words, when he invites us into this, this very space that forms our hearts to be one with God's heart, and he very simply gives us words to say together, isn't it ironic that we don't say them. I've been here for over six months as your guest preacher, and not once have we said these words together. Ouch. Now, you're not, I'm not singling you out. Almost every church I have ever preached for, for any length of time, there comes a moment when it dawns on me, wait a minute, we've been assembled as God's people to worship. And this prayer that Jesus gives us to invite us into the very heart and life of God and the instruction that seems very direct when you pray, when you gather to pray, say this, we don't pray. I was reviewing notes on this text and sermons I've preached in the past and I can tell you that for one church I preached for for 10 years. I came in the first year to the end of the first year and I said to them, I've been here a full year and we have never said this prayer together. I grew up in a church that somehow, in a tradition that somehow, was formed um, with this anti-ritual ritualness. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's an anti-ritual ritual. <laughs> that you don't do these things, say these things. It, it seems too much like what other traditions do, and we're not sure about that, that we should repeat these things like this in this way. And so we've chosen to be formed as a community in ways that do not say this prayer. Do you know how I learned to recite the Lord's Prayer? It wasn't in church. It was in high school athletics. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Maybe some of you had the same experience, that for all that was going on in high school, there was a lot going on in high school athletics, and for all coaches, different coaches, motivations and backgrounds and whatever, he at least had the sensibility to say, okay, what we're going to do, guys, gather around. Everybody take a knee before a game and let's pray. 
I'm not sure if that happens these days anymore, but I'm telling you, I learned to pray the Lord's Prayer out loud, in unison, with other people, not in church. And anti-ritual, ritualness seems to me it's kind of like cutting your nose off to spite your face. The very thing that Jesus lays out in front of us and says, take this and say it. It will tune your heart to be one with God's heart. It will form you to care about the things that God cares about. We've set aside. Some of the earliest records of Christ followers gathering to worship make clear that they took the form and shape of their worship together from early synagogue worship, from synagogue worship that preceded it. Not temple worship, but synagogue worship. And the outline, the contours of synagogue worship went something like this. The people would gather and assemble and there would be a benediction, a blessing, right? Let's call it an opening prayer that acknowledges God's presence and invites God's people into this time of worship, a benediction. And then there would be, um, there would be readings together. There would be a reading of the Shema. Shema is the word here in Hebrew. Um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That, 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 the Shema from Deuteronomy. And they would read that out loud together. Everybody together, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would say that. And they would often repeat, recite together out loud, all of them together, the Ten Commandments. And then there would be other readings. There's a lot of readings going on from the Psalms. It says readings, but actually what they're doing is they're, they're chanting Psalms together. It's how they sung. So they would sing from the songbook, the Psalms. And then there would be readings, again, from the Pentateuch. That's the Hebrew Bible, the first five books of our Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There would be a reading from the Pentateuch. And then someone would give up, a rabbi would get up, and give an exposition of the reading. Often it would be a midrash, so they would take a phrase and they would comment on it, and a phrase, and you've heard preaching like this. Right? That's what happened in the synagogue. And then after that, there would be a closing benediction. That's the order of service for a synagogue worship service. Early Christians adopted this. It makes sense because Christianity, Jesus himself, his, his life and worship grew up out of that tradition, synagogue worship. Here's the interesting thing, that when you compare the two, the historical reference to early Christian worship assemblies, it looked very much the same as synagogue worship, except that part after the opening benediction where they would all speak and read Scripture together. Instead of the Shema, you know what they did? They replaced the Shema with the Lord's Prayer. Every single time they assembled. As the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, so we say. And they said the prayer together because they believed in its power to form them. Well, one, maybe they just wanted to follow the instructions of Jesus. <laughs> And secondly, maybe they understood that doing this practice would etch within their hearts, deeply within their hearts, the things that God cares about most. That's the thing about ritual. I used to teach classes. I don't get to teach as much college courses in one of them I taught at both the undergraduate and graduate and doctoral level. All three levels was a class on Christian worship. And in my undergraduate classes on Christian worship, I used to start by saying ritual is not a four-letter word. R-I-T-U-A-L. But you get it, right? Because for so many of us in the free church tradition, such as this one, the non-liturgical church tradition, we have set aside ritual practices as being bad. 
Because if you do something over and over again, it just becomes rote and it doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't, you, you can do it and you don't, it doesn't even resonate with you, right? Any of you thought this, felt this? Ritual is a four-letter word. It's a bad word. But actually, it's deeply and powerfully profound because it means that beyond the level of our own consciousness, doing something repetitively permeates beneath whether or not uh, it is teaching us something new or it is moving us in new ways. It is writing something on our hearts over and over and over and over again. You might remember one of the first sermons I preached here back in June. I said to you, I bet you there are some songs that if I start the first few words, you can immediately begin to repeat the rest, to sing the rest. And I made the point that not only that, but sometimes because you have sung that song over and over and over again, it will transport you back to another moment in time. And all of these things will be gathered up and drawn forward into the present moment. Do you remember that? I played this little clip from my friend Kay. Kay's, James, James said, Kay's good at singing. She used to sing Amazing Grace in church. And we played Kay singing Amazing Grace. And at the end of it, she stopped and she said, oh, it makes me want to cry. Why? Ritual does this. It writes on our hearts the things of God. It forms, it etches within us so that our heart, the pulse of our life beats one with God's heart. Ritual's not a four-letter word. It's powerful. And so we say, Lord, teach us to pray. Form us so that our life conforms to your life. Make us to be your people who care about the things that you care about most. I don't know if you noticed this, but if you look on your uh, handout that has the order of worship, down at the bottom, I've asked Vicki to include, I, um, it says pre-post-worship uh, music or something like that. Does it say that there? And... Um, so just before we start, you'll notice there's some music that plays. And then after we close our service, there's some music that plays. And um, what I want you to know is that that choice is not random. It's intentional. So it says there that what you heard this morning, just before we started, was a song that's called what? Form Us. And you'll hear it again. And I don't want you to stop visiting with people and greeting people like you do after the service is over. But I want you to be aware. It says, form us of these words. These are the words. Form us. Make us, mold us, shape us to be like you. Move to action, full of mercy and compassion. And our hearts say, yes, Lord, come take control. In us, in us, come have your way, O Lord. In us, in us, your way. In us, in us, come form your heart, O Lord. In us, in us, your heart. Isn't that powerful? What I would suggest to you is that's a version of saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Gather us in a house of prayer. We used to say, going to church. What are you doing Sunday morning? We're going to church. Everybody get up. It's time to get ready. We're going to church. Maybe we begin to think we're going to the house of prayer. And we're inviting God to lead us, to form us as we pray together so that our heart might be one with God's, beat one with God's heart. Jesus' disciples came to him and asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say this. And let me ask uh, my friends in the AV booth to now put the words of the Lord's Prayer on the screen. And I'm going to invite us to say these words together as we close our uh, time together in the Word. We pray together as the Lord Jesus has taught us to, prayer, to pray, saying these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.